welcome to a supplemental edition of the first episode of Sportsish. I'm Chad Shanks, and if you're looking for the first full episode of this series, you'll want to download the one titled Episode 1, Team Social Media in the Rise of NBA Twitter. But if you've already listened to it and want to hear more from my guest from that episode, then you are in the right place. This is my full interview with Greg Esposito, a.k.a. Espo. Espo is currently the manager of social media for the National Academy of Sports Medicine, but Phoenix Suns fans know him as the former voice of their team's social media accounts. In this interview, you'll hear him detail how he went from a lifelong Suns fan to the voice of the franchise, even if he and pretty much everyone else in the organization had yet to realize that he was. He gives a brutally honest account of the ups and downs of a job that a lot of people still don't completely understand, but all the while keeping an infectiously positive attitude about it. Talking to Greg made me remember how much I once loved working in NBA Social, and I hope that by the end of this interview, his positivity will have infected you as well. So here is my full conversation with Greg Esposito. So I know you grew up a fan of the Suns, right? Did you did you grow up in the Phoenix area? Yeah, I grew up uh, about 15, 20 minutes outside of... Uh downtown phoenix in the arena and really just fell in love with basketball around 1992 i was nine years old uh charles barkley had just been traded the suns the dream team was playing that summer and i i never i never really remember liking sports prior to that i'm sure i did my dad was a was a fan and i'm sure i i watched stuff with him but that was my first memories of really being a a fan and the Suns were my first love. I used to joke uh, when my wife and I started dating, I made it very clear that they uh, they were my first love. So uh, it was them and then her. And uh, hmm. she was kind enough not to take that too personally and stick around. So Yeah. And so do you remember, I mean, that was around the era they made it to the finals and lost to the Bulls. Like, Do you remember watching those? that series and being crushed by the loss. Oh yeah. I remember that whole season. I used to sit in my bedroom as a kid. My parents uh, were too cheap uh, to purchase cable and half the sun's games, all the home games were on cable. So during home games, I would sit in my room. I blame my bed. I had a little old Emerson clock radio with a tape deck in it. And I'd sit there and I'd listen to every home game with uh, Al McCoy, who's their broadcaster, Hall of Fame broadcaster. I would just sit there, and I remember at nine years old, uh, you're you're kind of superstitious. You don't really think through things. You just do them because you think, okay, somehow magically, if I lay in this one spot when they're on a good run and I don't move, that run's going to continue. Or if I wear my hat in bed this certain way, uh, the Suns are going to continue to win this game. So I do all sorts of crazy things. And I remember just laying there for hours and hours, just listening to these games, imagining things. And then I'd watch every road game on television. Uh, you know, it didn't matter if it started on at five o'clock on the East Coast. And I, uh, I, I had to sit there and, and, it, convince my parents I could eat dinner in front of the TV or skip dinner altogether that night because I, I had to watch this game. I I just, I was a diehard starting at nine. I remember that playoff run. It was just, it was magical as a kid. You, you just sit there and I got lucky. I mean, the first season that I was captured 
by a sports team in my imagination was they they make it all the way to the finals and sure they didn't win and i remember it being heart just crushing Uh, and it may actually be why i have so many psychoses as an adult you know you get you get crushed like that as a kid it sticks with you you just expect that to continue to happen but uh yeah i just i remember everything about that season then uh, it, it was bizarre because they finished second. They lose the finals, and then they have a parade here, and two hundred and fifty thousand people show up in the in in early June. It's a hundred oh, plus really? degrees out. Yeah, it's crazy. There's there's sea there's a sea of people around the arena, and then they bring the players in in these like classic cars and stuff. And I badly wanted to go, but I'm nine, and my dad. And mom have no desire to spend a Saturday morning in a sea of people downtown. So I don't get it. I don't wind up getting to go, but they were televising it. I think two or three of the local stations actually televised it live. And I remember just sitting my butt in front of the television and watching this. And like the, the crowd was so crazy. It like mobbed the car Charles Barkley was in and he couldn't drive. He had to walk the last quarter of a mile to the arena because they couldn't keep driving the car there were so many people that had surrounded it at that point and nowadays that sounds scary like something would happen but yeah. then like no they they take charles out and he's just walking through the crowd and uh, and they all addressed the uh the, the crowd it was just a very special thing uh in this town it galvanized the the city and the state to some extent uh, and i don't think i've ever seen anything quite like it since then i mean we've had the cardinals make a super bowl run which everybody got excited about the diamondbacks won a championship but there was nothing quite like that 92 93 team and i got lucky enough to you know start being a fan then and uh, i'll never forget it yeah i mean it shows how much things have changed like can you imagine any team doing a runner runners up parade nowadays i mean they would just be just crucified on the internet just like the uh, like the Colts with the uh, the AFC runner-up banner they put up a few years ago. Yeah, I, I didn't even know about that. I, I had no idea that took place. Um, well, so did you? I know it's impossible. It was impossible to grow up dreaming of eventually running the Suns Instagram account because that wasn't even a, a thing you could dream about. But um, I mean, how early along did you say, all right, I'm, I'm going to do whatever it takes to work for the Suns? Well, I, I was at a point where I still thought I was going to play power forward for the Suns. I didn't understand the complexity <laughs> of, of genetics and the fact that my dad was 5'6 and my mom was 5'8, that the chances I ever would even uh, play basketball beyond middle school or with my friends were slim to none. So at nine, I thought, yeah, power forward for the Suns sounds like a really good idea, and, and I'm going to make that happen. Uh, probably around 11, 12, it started to become abundantly clear to me that uh, playing sports uh, was not going to be in the cards at any level for me because uh, not only did my genetics uh, height-wise not play play into things, but my ability to actually play sports was pretty awful. So you know, what, what they say is when you can't, when you can't do, you uh, critique. And I thought, oh, I'll become some kind of radio host or, or I'll write. Uh, I enjoyed I enjoyed the spoken word a little bit more than writing at the time. I uh, wasn't a big writing fan, but thought, okay, that's the path I'm going to go down. And it's rare at 11 that you decide 
something you're going to try to pursue like that. But I stuck to it. I mean, I started interning in radio at 14. I was on air doing high school football uh, reporting at that point. Uh, I wound up trying out for things like uh, the Phoenix Mercury's radio kid uh, caster and all these different oh, wow. things and, and just really anything I could attempt to do, I, I do. And this is, I mean, we're talking mid nineties. Uh, you know, I used to call into all, all the sports radio shows when there was a hot topic and used to, I mean, we're talking AOL days and I'd find, I found a site where you could actually do your own live radio show through like AOL and like totally nobody would ever listen because back then your internet <laughs> speeds weren't even fast enough for audio, but I would sit there and I would, uh, you know, commentate on Suns games while they were on. And I was sitting in front of, you know, my crappy old IBM uh, desktop computer and, and a really bad, uh, really bad mic about that from back in the day. And, and would just do that. Like it was a, it was a dream to find a way to work in sports. And I don't think it was so much I, I necessarily would I at the time I would have loved to have worked for the Suns. I would have loved to have somehow been on the radio broadcast, but I really thought, okay, that's probably never going to happen. So I'd love to at least host my own radio show. So that was kind of where my mindset was uh, in my, in my earlier years. And then it just kind of, evolved i kept working in radio in college and that when i graduated college i looked at the kind of the landscape of where it was and we were you know and that it, it, things weren't great economically it was late 2006 and i thought well the chances i'm going to actually leave college and find a job right away in in this industry are, are probably slim to none so uh my college roommate and i said why don't we start like a Phoenix, Arizona sports magazine website. And we'll try this new podcasting thing because literally it was, it, people were just starting to try it. And we thought, well, you know what? We'll figure out the technical side. My buddy figured out how to code everything. I, uh, I wound up saying, you know what? Fine. I'll, I'll write and I'll, I'll do this podcast. And we did that for, uh, you know, a year or two and wound up getting bought out and starting, uh, a, a fledgling media company and, in Phoenix and, and it just kind of spiraled from there. And it was, it was lucky. I got lucky that I got a chance to do a lot of things, but it, working for the Suns was, was a dream, but one I never thought was really attainable. Yeah. Well, how did it actually come about? Did the Suns see your, your work on your, um, on your website and podcasts and stuff? Is that how they, they learned of you? Yeah. Uh, it was actually Jeremy McPeak, who was the vice president of digital at the time, uh, while I was running this website with my uh, uh, with my college roommate, uh, he, he reached out and said, "Why don't Why don't we go to lunch?" And this was this was probably six or seven years before I actually worked for the team, uh, and we just had lunch. And he said, "Hey, I really like what you guys are doing. I I applaud that you're uh, you're trying these things. You're doing different things. I mean, we were we were hustling. I mean, we're in our early twenties. We're going to." minor league sporting events, you know, the old Phoenix Roadrunners who play, who were owned by the Suns franchise at the time and uh, arena football. We were doing a little of everything, just trying to get our name out there. And, and he was kind enough to kind of reach out and, and talk with us. And 
we kind of just started a relationship that way. I always stayed in touch. And then, you know, it was, it was the summer of 2011. I get a, a, a email and it was Jeremy and basically saying, Hey, look, I, I have this new position. Nobody in the NBA is doing it yet. It's going to be a, a social media position. And I've enjoyed what you've done on your website. I've enjoyed that you've jumped into Twitter and, and, what you've done there. And I wrote this job description with you in mind. So I'd really like for you to apply. Now, that doesn't mean you're going to get the job uh, just because I wrote it with you in mind, but I'd really like you to go through the process. And at the time I was working for uh, Arizona Sports, uh, which is the, the the big dog in sports radio and and probably outside of the local newspaper, the second largest sports website as well in the state. And I, I mean, I wasn't making anything money wise, but I was actually in a pretty good position and I had just, uh, just gotten married a, a year and a half before. And I was like, I don't know that I want to do this. I love the sons and I very much have always wanted to work for them, but I'm in a good spot here. I might actually be able to make my radio dreams come true. I'm, I'm running this sports website and starting to find my voice as a writer. I don't know that I want to go to the team side and actually do this. I don't know that I can, uh, I can take that path because I'm just not sure uh, it's what I want to do. And I happen to call uh, the Arizona Cardinals were one of the first teams to hire uh, a local a guy who had been a beat writer for the team for one of the newspapers and hire him to take over a lot of their web stuff. So his name's Darren Urban. He's still over there. And I called him up. Uh, I, I was lucky enough to know some people who knew him and talk to him about what it was like to make that transition from media to a team. And uh, it, with great hesitation uh, on, on my wife's, uh, uh, on my wife's advice, I, I want to, taking the job kind of reluctantly. I beat out, I think Jeremy had said there was about 850 other people who had applied and a handful that had interviewed, uh, you know, throughout the process. And uh, I wound up beating them out and I wound up taking it and happened to get the son's job in September of 2011. And if you remember that, there was a little lockout going on. So it was, uh, yep. It was not exactly the easiest time to accept a position and and do that uh, and go work for a team when there was no actual sport to uh, to cover or do anything with. So what did you do on your first day? You just walked in and they're like, all right, we'll just hang out for a few weeks and we'll see if this gets worked out. Uh, I mean, I was in awe. You, when you when your office winds up being the same building that you went into with your parent, your dad as a kid to, to watch Charles Barkley and Kevin Johnson and Dan Marley play. And then you walk in and one of the first things you see is the bowl of the arena and their ring of honor with those guys' pictures up. I remember that first day and pretty much every other day for five years, I was in awe when I got a chance to to walk by that and in shock that that was actually my office. Now, after that, it, the, the reality of it hit that, okay, well, we have no basketball. The rules say we can't talk about any current players. So what the heck can we do? 
And that was where it benefited me that I had been a fan for 20 some odd years at that point was I could play the hits. I knew the hits. I knew oh, yeah. uh, the stuff that we could dig up and we could do. So we did history heavy stuff for, I mean, I started in September. Lockout doesn't end until uh, around Thanksgiving at that point. Uh, so we just, we just hit the, the history stuff hard. And uh, we did, I remember putting together, uh, there's this company called What If Sports, and they'll actually take uh, fictitious rosters, group groupings of players that you choose, and they put them in a simulation where they play head-to-head. So I set up a eight-team tournament where we drafted uh, a bunch of employees for the Suns, drafted uh, historic teams. Uh, anybody that wasn't currently playing, that had already retired, was eligible for the draft we put together eight teams and you had to select which season that guy uh his stats were going to be taken into account and we ran a full-fledged tournament during that time which uh was one of my favorite things we ever did because we had to get creative there was no basketball so you had to try something and uh, it actually turned into a big hit on on social and that was kind of the first time i got a chance to do anything uh creative with the job and and was pretty happy with it but it was scary i mean you're going rolling into i remember thanksgiving break uh my wife was seeing family i stayed because of the job i didn't have time off yet and i'm sitting there and i'm watching nba tv because you you see these tweets that oh the nba players and and owners are meeting right now and there may be an announcement it's like one or two in the morning and I'm sitting there and we had been told you're probably going to get furloughed if this goes till the December, till December. And I thought, great. I left a, val- a good career to take this chance. And now I'm going to be sitting here without making any money because the first one in or the last one in is going to be the first one out. So, yeah, you know, so, but luckily we, we got the season going and I got to experience that. But yeah, we, we just got unique with it we tried a lot of historical stuff and uh luckily that's what our fans uh to this day still like because it's been kind of a dry eight years uh without any playoffs or real real winning so history history always works yeah nostalgia is always a, a good number to play oh yeah fan bases it's a it's a hell um, of a drug for sure that nostalgia so yeah well and so like you talking about doing the you know drafting all-time players and making a tournament and stuff like that sounds like something you would see any social account in sports do something similar to that today. But so I started uh, post lockout as well. I was, uh, they hired me as soon as the lockout ended. And um, so I remember being thrown into there and everyone's running around like a chicken with their head cut off. Like it was a crazy time to start a job, especially one that high pressure. Um, But from my recollection, teams just weren't doing stuff like that in the early days, like the early days of social media, you know, talking about late 2011, 2012 in the NBA was just nothing like it is today. And like something like that, that you guys were doing was really, truly innovative at the time. So, I mean, what what do you remember about, you know, once the game started up and you had to jump in and start producing content regularly when there wasn't really a rule book for it yet. Right. There wasn't, there wasn't a whole lot of things that you could, 
you could look to for guidance. We were kind of like making it all up as we went, right? Well, that that was the beauty of it, though. It was kind of the Wild West because when oh, yeah. in, in that time, the, the conventional social post was, here's a link to something that was written. There's no photo. There's no creativity. Uh, it's either a press release or something that if you were lucky enough to have a guy that wrote on your website, here's the link to that. And that was really all social media was back then. So we, at that time you come in with a blank slate and, and it was exciting. Now I'm, I'm not going to say everything we tried was great or that, uh, there weren't a lot of failures, but that was the beauty in it. You could fail and, Nobody really paid a lot no of attention at the time. Yeah. <laughs> no like, one cared. Like literally it was, I don't even think higher ups at the team knew what the hell I was doing. They were just like, yeah, yeah, sure. If you need it, hire the guy. And it was, it was very, it was a very bizarre time because you pretty much could get away with, with a lot of things because there wasn't this scrutiny. There weren't these eyes. And I just found the best way to, treat things was take the mentality that the count was the biggest fan you knew interact with fans like they were fans talk on that level with them and i mean this was pre video there wasn't a lot of video that you could do and really there wasn't a lot of visual that people were pushing at the time so it was it was about being witty connecting with fans and and trying to create these things that fans would like. And, and I, I, I was lucky I had the leg up because I was one of them. I was probably growing up the biggest Suns fan I knew. So I had the chance to just use what I would likely be talking with, with my friends about the Suns uh, as part of the social channel. I got, and I, I mentioned him before, but I can't give enough credit to, Jeremy McPeak and his willingness to let me try things, to do things that other teams may have thought was crazy or, you know, just not, not good business at the time, like pop culture references. It wasn't now everybody does it. It's almost, it's almost cliche now to, to use a pop culture reference. But back then it, it like people were like, Whoa, is that really professional? Like we, you know, people almost expected you to write, like it was a press release at the time. And it was just fun to, to push those limits. I mean, I remember my first summer league. I don't remember much about season one since it was 66 games and I don't remember 70 something nights. It was something ridiculous. Yeah, like that. it was insane. I mean, we, we find out lockouts over free agency starts like three days later, training camps a week later. Like it was all just a blur. So the first season was. Uh, kind of that NCAA tournament mentality of survive in advance. <laughs> like it wasn't, it wasn't mm-hmm. about you know changing the game completely. It was about okay, let's just try to make it through. I mean, we did try one unique thing. Uh, Katie Christensen, who's now the sideline reporter for the Sacramento Kings, was actually our social media. Uh, sideline reporter so we actually had a segment on the broadcast where katie and i uh katie was on air i was her producer basically where we would take questions from fans and kind of take the poll uh take polls of of fans and and try different things with them and it would actually make it on the broadcast and it was probably it didn't really work because we were probably a little too 
early on it and uh and it was cumbersome. I mean it was tough, but that was probably the most unique thing we uh, attempted that first year, but other than that the rest of it was a blur, but I do remember the first summer league uh Max Rappaport and I went back and forth uh it was a, a middle of July. We're in Vegas. It's a 1 p.m. game at uh, at Cox Pavilion. Nobody cares. This is, you know, like nobody cares. It's it's two teams that, that people couldn't care about in the 76ers and the Suns. And we just, you know, I just sarcastically uh, make some Fresh Prince reference. And we go like 20 tweets deep just giving each other – crap about the how I, you know, I'm busting him that Philly really lost that deal and uh, trading the Fresh Prince to LA and all this stuff. We don't think anything of it. We're just bored in Vegas, you know, and all of a sudden it, it just starts getting these massive retweets. And then uh, somebody tells us like by the end of the game, there's an article on, I think it was ESPN that somebody had uh, aggregated all the tweets and then it winds up on sports center. It's just all this weird stuff that started to happen when we were just goofing around. Like, you don't think about it. You don't go, hey, this is going to be great. It's going to get a whole bunch of national attention, and and it's going to wind up on SportsCenter. At least at the time, we didn't think like that because it just wasn't the norm that social media was showing up places. And I just, we were just having fun making pop culture references, and all of a sudden, it, it, it kind of – hit uh got momentum and and was a big hit and to me that was that was the moment i went okay there's power in in just having fun with this and not taking it too seriously and and just being human with it and and maybe that's where the real win is here and when we just kept doing more of it you know and that that's how that was uh that was kind of the the light bulb moment for me that uh that first 12 months on the job yeah, and so did that change your approach going forward, knowing that you anything you tweet could become national news? Uh, not really, because I think the more you started to think about that, the more it crippled the way you would do things. I just figured, you know what, I have the backing of my bosses uh, with this right now, and if I do something that they don't approve of or – uh, goes too far, then I guess that's, that's that, that, you know, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna sit here and, uh, and not do what seems to work. And if it, if it goes, if it hits a point where, you know, it, it's too much, then so be it. And I, I had faith that at least, uh, I'd get to discuss it, uh, if, if it ever got to that point, but, uh, you know, that, that was always my mindset. If you worry too much in social, you're, you're just not going to be very good at it. You don't have time to worry. I mean, it's a, it's a split second, especially back in those days. You, you were live tweeting uh, events like crazy and you would, uh, you're, you get 140 characters at the time and about 10 seconds to write it up and fire it off to be relevant in the moment. And I just, I didn't want to, overthink it too much yeah and having to rely mostly on text because we couldn't use video they wouldn't let us post video during the game at the time didn't even have a mechanism to do that 
and photos were hard to come by. So yeah, you had to make up stuff off the top of your head and make it interesting a lot of times with just with just text. Yeah, and this was before, I mean, emojis weren't overly popular like at the beginning of, of what we were doing. It literally was, hey, how witty can I be in 140 written characters, you know? Or if I have to link something, how witty can I be in 100 characters? Because back then, links cut yeah. into your into your tweets too. And then, then Facebook was a different beast. I mean, you were like, okay, how do I get people to talk? It wasn't as, wasn't as immediate and never seemed to get as much attention as, uh, as NBA Twitter did. But yeah, it, like that was, that was the toughest part of the job. And I don't think people understood because you say, Hey, I work in social media for team and like, Oh, you just goof around all day. And it's like, well, no, I'm making a whole lot of decisions as the, the, the voice in the face of a brand, uh, in split seconds. So yeah, it's, it's much tougher than you think. And I don't even think at the time, like I previously said that the front office and, and ownership and, and everybody above you really understood that you were literally the voice of an entire organization and the world was seeing everything you were doing. I just, I don't think that really hit them until this stuff started gaining more attention from, from national outlets. Yeah, was there a, a moment other than the the story you just mentioned about you and Max going back and forth? Was there a moment where you knew, okay, now the rest of the organization gets it? Gets it? Uh, I don't know about. Uh, I don't know about gets it. Uh, Jeremy, where they realized the importance. <laughs> uh, I remember a couple. Uh, on the opposite side of things, they they thought, oh, it's nice uh, that we got mentioned on Sports Center. Oh, it's nice that there's. There's articles, but I remember uh, Portland, uh, Portland, Chris up there, and I went back and forth on. Uh, it was around the time where the Eastern Conference was just awful, and uh, and the Western Conference was just stacked, and the Suns were were having the first really good season, uh, the only really good season that I worked uh, where we had a winning record and they were making this magical run and Portland made some comment about, about the East and it was kind of veiled and you didn't really, I mean, you knew what they were saying, but you didn't know. And I sarcastically replied back, Hey, do you know how somebody can transfer from the Eastern conference to the Western conference? Yeah, I remember asking that. for a friend. And I remember that yeah. again. We weren't, we weren't thinking this was going to be anything. All of a sudden, like an hour later, we're on Sports Center, and it's like they're trying to make a controversy out of two Twitter accounts joking about, "Hey, we might make the playoffs in the West, but if we move to the East, you know." Uh, and we made some jokes about, you know, we're east of whatever, you know, because we we're both pretty far uh, far west, and and it caught a bunch of traction. The next day, I'm at lunch listening to or driving to lunch listening to the radio, and our president of basketball operations at the time, Lon Babby, had a show with one of the midday uh, sports talk uh, shows, and they asked him about it, whether they thought, uh, I don't remember the exact phrasing, but it was something like, do you actually feel like your your digital department and your Twitter account should ever be saying things like this and stirring up controversy? Like They tried to turn it into like this big deal. And, oh, yeah. And I'm like, well, it's been fun. That's it. I'm about to lose my job just because this is happening on radio 
right now. I'm just going to go back and pack my desk. And, uh, and he goes, you know what? I, I trust our digital department. They know what's right in, uh, in what works in that realm. And I didn't have, uh, I didn't have a problem with what they did. They, they're just doing their jobs to the best of their ability. And we didn't always have the greatest relationship with, uh, with our basketball operations side. So that was a point where I went, okay, they do get it. They understand the power of it. And they understand that sometimes you're going to wind up being a little, you may walk the line a little bit. And so that was probably the moment where I went, there's probably a little bit more to this than, than I think if our president of basketball operations is going to get asked about it on a radio show. Yeah. Did you get a talking to after that? Did you get a slap on the wrist or anything? No, surprisingly not. I mean, that was, that was all it was. He said that on air. I saw him the next day and, uh, he, he was all right with it. The other, the other scariest thing that that first season, uh, when we had that social media sideline reporter, Katie Christensen, we had, uh, uh she was off, uh, doing some other, game uh she was doing college basketball during the tournament i think and i had a fill-in uh guy by the name of vince murata who i'd known for years uh and he was a he's a radio host in town now actually the pa announcer for the team and he goes down and at halftime they would ask one fan question to an assistant coach and then uh, he 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 or katie would ask additional questions to an assistant coach and it happened to be I believe it was Dan Marley that night and they were playing the Lakers and Kobe Bryant wasn't playing well. And Vince asked the fan question and then proceeds to ask Dan Marley, well, how do you continue to shut down Kobe Bryant in the second half? You think, you know, this is broadcast in arena. All the fans can hear. And you think, ah, innocuous question. No big deal. Well, apparently Kobe heard it and came out and went nuts in the second half and kept jawing at Alvin Gentry about how in the world, how are you going to shut me down now? You know, like making it very clear he heard that interview. John with the assistant coach too. And after the game, I thought, because Alvin knew I was the guy's producer, I thought Alvin was going to have me fired. Like, and Alvin is the nicest man in the world. I was terrified. I had to march <laughs> down there the next day and apologize profusely and say, hey, you know what? This is never going to happen again. I am so sorry. Uh, to the, now I think it's hilarious. I mean, something that I was involved in pissed Kobe Bryant off so bad that he went on a tear in the second half of a game and almost single-handedly brought back his team from being down double digits. I mean, that's nuts to me that 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 happened now, and it's a hilarious story. But at the time, you know, first year working for a team, you have a head coach that angry at you. Like that was that was a scary moment, but I was probably too naive to realize uh, that that everything I was doing had the ability to potentially lead to something like that. Oh yeah. Being naive back in those days was a, was a huge uh, asset. Yes. <laughs> Just um, well, what, what kind of relationship did you have with the, with the players? Did you interact with them a lot? Did you, did they know who you are, work with you? What, what was it like for you there? Yeah. I, the first year, uh, was interesting. Alvin actually was kind of my saving grace that first year. He took me under his wing, was always really uh, nice and, and to make sure that I was involved in things or got access to things. I remember my first road trip, 
Uh, they had never really let a social media person travel, so they decided, all right, we'll give this guy uh, a one-game trip to L.A. We're playing the Lakers. You fly it on a Thursday uh, and play Friday night and fly back out. So I had a free night, and I come down to the lobby, and I'm going to just walk and get get lunch at L.A. Live or something or, or dinner at L.A. Live or something. And Alvin Gentry's down there and all the broadcasters and uh, – and the team media relations person, Julie Fye, and they go, why don't you come with us? We're, we're going to this event. And I said, okay, you sure it's all right? Because I wasn't sure what the rules were at the time. And uh, she goes, yeah, it, it's okay. And Alvin's like, yeah, yeah, come on. You can ride in my car. So I get in the back of this, uh, this SUV, and all of a sudden, Steve Nash gets in the car. And uh, I don't remember who else. There's a couple other players, and and – uh, one other coach and I'm sitting in this car and I'm like, I should not be here. And like Steve Nash, <laughs> two time MVP sitting uh, two rows in front of me, talking to me like I'm a human being. Like, I'm like, wow, this is crazy. And I find out we're going to the premiere of Grant Hill's documentary on, uh, on Duke. It was his, the Duke documentary he did back in 2012 uh, around tournament time. So I guess around this time of year and we're going to the Paramount lot. So I wind up on the Paramount lot and uh before this uh this screening we're there's a little reception and we're standing there and I noticed Steve Nash just keeps getting hammered. All these people are walking up to him and he's standing at this table alone. So I just go, "You know what? I'm going to go over there and and just I I say to him, "Look, we don't have to talk. I just figure if somebody's standing here and we look like we're interacting, other people are going to be less likely to interrupt you. Uh, and it looks like you could just use some space. You know? And we wound up having a, having a conversation. He was grateful for that. And that was, that was that moment where I realized again, you have these aha moments in those first few years you're doing this job that, yeah, you could actually build a relationship with these guys and, and, even if if the guy is the best player on the team and a two time MVP, you can you can get to know him. And so that was that was year one. And after that, I just you know I made it a point to be uh, around, but not annoying. Uh, I never tried to over ask on things. Uh, wound up becoming very friendly with guys like Miles Plumley and and Goran Dragic and uh, Marcin Gortat. I actually still talk with with Goran and Marcin from time to time via, via social. And uh, yeah, throughout the years, we just, you build a rapport with them. Now you're not actually friends with these guys and you got to make sure you never, uh, you never forget that because you're not, you're not buddies with them. I mean, there uh, rarely have I heard of anybody that works on the digital side or in social media in particular, becoming legitimate friends with a player where they're going and hanging out or anything. But you build the relationship so when you have to be in those awkward situations where you're shoving a phone or a camera in somebody's face in those in those quiet moments where you get some of the best content, you know they'll let you do it because they trust you and they know you're not there to, to railroad them or put them in a bad position or put them in a bad light. And uh, I I just always learned, I always knew that. You always just had to walk that fine line and make sure that they were comfortable with you, knew you, because that was when you were going to get the best content. I mean, I, I did the social, I hosted a podcast too. And the, the best podcasts were with the guys that trusted you because they'd let their guard down. They'd tell you more about 
who they were as people and and what made them tick than than if you didn't have that rapport. I mean, I remember Devin Booker's rookie year was my first year and I got or my last year, excuse me, with the team and I got to know him pretty well and uh, one of the last the one of the last major things I did was he and I played 2K uh against each other on video and he just demolished me like it was awful but we had a rapport so he was busting my chops and then my final game there uh he he's coming out the tunnel and i mean he's he's becoming a pretty big name at this point he's running out the tunnel i'm sitting there trying to fire off pictures for for the instagram account or whatever and he starts yelling espo's last game espo's last game and the and the team's the team's kind of cheering. I'm like, that blew my. That's mind. pretty cool. I mean, that blew my mind because there's no, there's no reason a major athlete should ever do that. But when you take the time to get to know them as people, they treat you as people too, and it actually puts you in a much better position to be able to, you know, do your job and and get quality content. Yeah, you're walking a very fine line, just. 24 seven around those guys to where you have to, like you said, build that relationship, but at the same time, not overstep, but still have to get shove a camera in their face every once in a while and not have them hate you. Yeah. It's, it's a super difficult tightrope act that you're doing at all times to where you have to please your fans who want content, 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 uh, snark, 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 you know, something different, something funny. And the, the organization, especially the basketball side, who are, you know, most some of some of them don't want you around. Some of them don't like cameras behind the scenes in, you know, you're just you, you have to please both both sides. Yeah. And it's I don't think people realize how how difficult that is on a day in, day out basis. No, I don't think so either. And we didn't have the greatest of access. So I was I was walking an additional tightrope where I knew if. I screwed up with any of these guys. We were going to have even less access, and my job was going to become uh, even less uh, less uh, easy to accomplish. So that was another factor with it. But I, you know, we managed to we managed to do it. I can't, to be honest. And I, I'm going to sound like the old guy, you know, the get off my lawn guy. But I can't imagine running social now, where this next generation, because a lot of a lot of the original guys, you know, that that ran it, Max, you, me, Chris up in Portland, uh, a, a lot of them. I, I'm forgetting a bunch of great talent that that's walked away, but a lot of us have left the game, and now it's a now it's a new generation. Well, some of some of us left. Some of us were <laughs> were asked to leave. Well, yeah, but that that worked out all right for you. I think you're doing okay as well right now. So, but yeah. We all we all wound up uh, one way or another, and not in the game anymore. And this next, this new generation of people running the accounts, I think they have it tougher because not only I agree, do they have to now, now do they have to juggle more more properties? I mean, and and video has become a much larger part of it, but there's much more scrutiny. There's much, uh, it's much tougher to build those relationships because now players want uh, all the good stuff for their own accounts or if they're part of, uh, you know, uh, any, any number of, uh, outlets that, that have player content, whether it's Players Tribune or LeBron's outlet or any, uh, any of these, uh, places. So now you're battling that too. I just, it's a tougher, it's a tough, tougher waters to navigate. We got lucky. We, 
we kind of made the rules. We kind of helped define what NBA social and NBA Twitter really was, but we also uh, we also didn't have to deal with as much of the scrutiny and and some of the different things that come now. So I'm grateful that that I worked in the time that I did and that I got to build the relationships uh, that I did. Uh, certainly miss it too, but uh, it's it's different now for sure. Yeah, one of the things I hated the most was just the the rise of the corporate influence on social media and how once people in the organization realized, you know, you could you could sell corporate sponsored posts and stuff like that, it just added a whole new level of headache. And when I look at social team social now, I see that there's so much more of it than there was um when I was there. So uh what what was your experience like with you know, having to deal with your corporate sales, corporate relations, and not only in addition to now having to please fans, please coaching staffs and, and basketball operations. Now you have corporate partners that you have to worry about as well. What what was your experience like with uh, walking that fine line? Ah, so we're to the burning bridges portion of the podcast. Yes. All right. <laughs> I, good. I want to make sure, I want to make sure you are unemployable after this by anyone in the general Phoenix area. Finally, I was I was hoping that I could uh, make sure that I wasn't going to get back in sports by going on on this particular rant. Yeah, you know, first few years there wasn't much because marketing partnerships uh, I, who handled all the sales probably looked at us as the little annoying stuff that nobody gave a crap about. And by year three, it was oh, we can actually make money off of this, but. Uh, the problem was it lacked creativity. It lacked heart. It was just uh, trying to do the same conventional, here's some ad copy, throw it out there with an image that uh, that they do on TV or a radio spot. And uh, that was the side that never understood or fully grasped not only the power of digital, but the importance of actually being human and tying it uh, to stuff that fans actually gave a crap about. And we never actually, uh, and to be frank, uh, you look at it, and I still don't think the Suns have uh, have quite figured out a way to do it. But there is a way to marry content with sponsorship where it does not violate what fans want. It does not make them feel uh, just off-put by it, and it doesn't make the person who's pressing send feel dirty about it. Like, there was a point where we counted and we kept track of it. Uh, the Suns over, I think it was three seasons, had sent the most sponsored posts of anybody in the NBA. And if you want to kill oh, wow. if you want to kill engagement on social media, that's one hell of a way to do it. Uh is by just jamming ads down people's throats. And uh it even got to a point where they thought my tweets were impacting the television ratings, where I was asked to tweet the score less, uh show and this was towards the end. So uh, show less highlights uh, and talk less about the game because the ratings. Wow. Were, and if I had that much power, uh, I didn't know it because I was unaware that a handful of my tweets could actually drop ratings. But uh, that was kind of where we were at. And and sponsorship had a lot of power and it's tough. You got to find that balance. And some teams do it really, really, really well. Uh Philly does it pretty well now. Uh, Minnesota uh, does it pretty well now. Sacramento uh, ha has creative ways to work it in. Uh, Portland has always been one of my 
one of my favorites. They've always found creative ways to do all that stuff. And, uh, yeah. And it's changed, uh, it's changed hands who's run the, run the account and stuff, but they continue to do great. Uh, Jared in, uh, in Atlanta does a great job, but not all teams figure out how to do that. And it can be a death knell for your entire social media marketing because you just don't know, you know, exactly how much your fans start to despise it and start to ignore your accounts if it's just, Here's an offer you never asked for. Here's a blatant ad for a carpet cleaning company or you know just these things that didn't make a lot of sense for basketball fans. So yeah, I had my fair fair run-ins with uh with marketing partnerships and and dealing with that side of it. And it's not easy. And if you can figure out how to build that relationship well with your sponsorship group and where they can trust you and trust your instinct for content and sell the the partner on this is the best way to deliver it uh you're in a good place and that's what i suggest to any young person starting this is get to know that group as soon as you can uh, and learn how to work with them to pitch them ideas on content because you're you're gonna have a much easier road if you figure out how to do yeah and i would say to anyone on the opposite end if you're going into corporate sponsorship and sales you don't know more than the person (laughs) running the digital account listen to them my favorite thing was always they'd come to you and say, this is what the client wants. And you'd say, this is bad content. It's not going to go over well. And they're like, but this is what the client wants. And you go back and forth, back and forth. And finally, because they're the ones with the money, they always win out and you post it and it bombs, you know, especially after everything became so al- uh, algorithmic and how it's displayed, it bombs. And then they blame you for it. Oh yeah. Like why didn't this, why didn't this get more eyeballs? Like, cause I told you it wasn't going to work. Yeah. And but, I think I learned too late in the game that there is an actual game to it all that you have to play. And I was not very good at that game because I would very, no, blatantly, me either. I would very blatantly say, this is an awful idea and it's not going to work on social and this is what's going to happen. And then it did happen exactly the way I said, and you're right. You got blamed because why are we not getting more engagement? Well, it's because uh, more than half of our posts are sponsored posts that we're not putting any dollars behind to actually get eyeballs to see, and it's going to fail. And it's going to continue to fail if we continue the strategy. Yeah. Well, let me ask you about, all right, so you put out a post, either something like that, that you're not really gung-ho about or something that you think is really creative or funny in the moment you put it out and it just bombs or you get a negative reaction so you know how did you deal with you know things that didn't work out so well and getting getting bad feedback of it um you know how did how did you process that or follow-up question how quickly did you become numb to any type of reactions like that uh to be honest i mean i could give you the the pretty picture of it and act as if it didn't bother me, but I took it probably way too personally, especially since, and I think, I think this was probably the the biggest thing I didn't consider taking a job with a team I loved since I was a kid is I did take it very personally. I did uh, just treat it as if it was some kind of just, uh, just poor, it, it, I took it as if I took it as if it was if it was on me, like somehow I had done a disservice to 
a fan base and a group of people that that meant so much to me and I got angry. I mean, I got frustrated with it. And as as I grew, I started to learn you couldn't take it personally. You couldn't let it get under your skin like that, but early on it was tough. I mean, I I probably emotionally overreacted to to a lot of it. I mean, and I was in my in my 20s at the time, my my late 20s and and doing something I cared about, but yeah, you have to learn to separate yourself from from the post, from what you're doing, even if even if it is a team that you grew up loving and not really not really take it overly personally. I didn't become numb to it because the second you become numb to it, you kind of forget uh you kind of forget that you need to take some constructive criticism. Now, I kind of became numb to a lot of the idiots, uh, you know, the keyboard warriors out there that were just looking to trash everything you did just to get a reaction out of you. But uh, I never became numb to people within the organization or a genuine fan uh, making a comment and, and tried to figure out a way to not take it personally, but take, the truth within it and, and try to make myself better uh, with it. And, you know, that's still ongoing in, in the jobs I work now. I mean, I don't work as high profile. I don't, uh, uh, you know, I didn't grow up love, you know, loving the brand the way, uh, way I did with the sons, but uh, you know, you still wind up, it, it, there's a little, uh, a little of your creativity and a little of your heart in each of those things that you do. So you do take it, Personally, I, I don't know if that answers your question fully, but that's uh, no, no, it does. Where I, kind of where I am with it. Were you were you able to, especially during the season, were you able to disconnect and put the phone down whenever you're not uh, not at the job? Because I, like I found, you were never you were never off call during the during the season. Like, did you were you able ever able to disconnect? Because I felt like I was just constantly glued to my phone because someone needed something or I was just addicted to watching interactions and stuff like that. Yeah, no, I, I never was able to put down the phone and frankly, it put a strain on, uh, on my marriage and, and certain relationships because you became the guy that never was really, uh, in the moment where you were, you weren't ever really yeah. fully paying attention to the rest of what was going on around you. And I still, I mean, people laugh, but it becomes kind of an addiction. You, you kind yeah, of, it does. you, you very much feel this pull to constantly be checking and what, who's talking about what? And is there an angle to get in on this conversation? I mean, it could have been, I remember waking up in the middle of the night when I couldn't sleep while I was doing it. And I, the first thing I would do is grab my phone. I'd go check everything. Like there's something wrong with that. And you got to figure out a way. Uh, and I'm still working on this to this day, figure out a way not to not to get sucked into that that much. You have to care. You have to be around to be in the conversation, but you also have to understand you don't have to be part of everything. You can't be part of everything. And if you want to do these jobs well, and you want to do them well for for the company or the team that you represent, you've got to take a step back because creativity does not thrive in an environment where you're constantly on and constantly checking. And and yeah, it, it can have an impact on on your actual life if you're not too careful with it. And yeah, I still I, I still fight the urge to grab and check Twitter and check what's going on on Instagram. And uh, and I think it'll be a battle. I as long as I work in social media, I'll always be fighting. 
Yeah. Well, um, so you mentioned your first road trip. Did you start traveling more with the team? And if so, like how, how did that, you know, further impede any sort of semblance of work-life balance? No, we, uh, as I mentioned, sometimes there was strained relationships with, uh, with us and, and basketball ops, which I, I think happens with a lot of teams. I mean, it's just, uh, depending on who your general manager, your president of basketball operations are and how comfortable they are with access, that kind of ebbs and flows. So I got to go on one or two trips a year of where I flew on the team plane and, uh, wound up covering, uh, all-star and summer league on a regular basis. So those were trips I always had penciled in. There's nothing like living in Las Vegas for two and a half weeks in, uh, in July to, to help, uh, not only your marriage, but your sanity, you know, that's always great. But, uh, yeah. So, I mean, there was strain with that, but you kind of accept that that's going to be part of the job. I don't know how beat writers or, uh, production crews that travel with a team, if, if your team does production in house, uh, handle being on the road that often, like they, there is no work life balance with that. And honestly, living at a suitcase for that long, I mean, I went on a five city road trip was probably my longest and you start just forgetting where you are and what's going on until you get to an arena and you see the other team's logo and you go, Oh yeah, that's right. I'm in Portland today or I'm in New York city today. Oh, New York's probably a bad example when you're in that city, you know where you are. Yeah. You always know you're but, in New York. <laughs> but okay. <laughs> no, but I get, you know, I would wake up, I would wake up in a hotel and it would take me a few seconds to remember where I was. I had no idea where I was. Oh yeah. You start, you start to feel like Bill Murray and Groundhog's Day and you're just like, uh, okay, I'm, I'm okay. It's back to this again. And then you got to get your bearings to figure out where you were. So it yeah, travels difficult, but uh, you know, if you're young, if you if you're doing this job and you you aren't married or whatever, do it. Get as much of it in as you can. Go enjoy it. Uh, you know, sure, maybe it's a little bit of a a pain in the butt to have to pack and be gone that long or whatever, but go do it. You're never gonna get that chance to uh, to do that without the ties or without uh, you know and and being young to do it again. So go enjoy it. Is my is my advice uh, to anybody young in this business and, and getting a chance to be around a team like that. Try everything. Be, go, go do all of it. I, I can't, uh, I can't believe some of the things I got to be involved in and got a chance to see and witness. And if I had been closed off, I, I wouldn't have, I mean, it would have been real easy to just do uh, the, the bare minimum and, and go, eh, I don't really want to go on this trip or I don't want to go to this event, uh, but soak it in. It's it's a once in a lifetime experience, and try to keep that keep that sense of awe while you're doing it throughout your tenure with a team is is the best advice I can offer. Because the second you start to treat it like a job and and lose that sense of awe, it, it's a shame because you get to experience things that nobody else gets to, and you gotta always remember that you're the eyes and ears of your fan base and they don't get the chance to be in those halls or be on that plane or be in that locker room or on that trip. And, and you do, and there, there's something special that whether it's the first time you're doing it or, or the 400th time you're doing it, uh, you get to be in a unique position that, that many others would love to be in. And, and you got to keep that in mind regardless of, of how 
difficult the travel or the the hours or any of that is and and you also have to know when it's time to walk away too if uh if you're at a point where mentally and I kind of got to this point I you were just exhausted and you you weren't overly creative anymore and uh it, it was becoming difficult it's okay to just go you know what I'm going to go do something else for a while maybe maybe if the situation's right or the time's right I'll come back to this but but I need to walk away from now for now because I'm not doing it justice. And that was kind of, that was kind of the point I got to. I, I just decided, you know, my wife's going to have a baby. Uh, my wife and I are going to have a baby. I'm exhausted with this. I'm not feeling creative. I'm going to step away for a while and maybe I'll come back and, and maybe I won't, but, uh, I, I can't do this, uh, do this justice. I don't feel that sense of awe anymore. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I definitely hear everything you're saying. Um, there definitely seems to be a, there's a very high turnover rate in uh, professional sports that I don't think people realize because, yes, when you tell people what you do or if I told people, yeah, I travel with the team on the team plane, they're like, oh, my God, that must be the most incredible thing. And I'm like, yes, it is. But in the back of my mind, I'm like, I've worked 90 hours this week and I haven't seen my wife awake, you know, and um there was there was definitely I don't want to say a dark side that makes it sound more melodramatic than it is. But, there you know, there was definitely another side to it to where I was just fatigued all the time, just nonstop fatigue. But at the same time, he kept going because, you know, I really loved what I was doing and didn't you know, you didn't realize how long you have in this position. And so you want, you want to make the most of it. And sometimes that it takes a toll on you physically or with your relationships and things like that. So yeah, it it definitely has a shorter shelf life than I think people people realize. Was that your experience with the Suns and just seeing other people uh around the league coming and going? Oh, I mean, yeah, even even the just the general turnover in in our staff and my time with the Suns uh, throughout the organization was what she was I'd probably guess 75% of the organization turned over was there in my five years and you know people are going to think you're exaggerating but you're no, not I, like I, I i'm probably you know. i'm probably under the actual number of what it was it there's a very short shelf life there's rare people that wind up being lifers but there's there's a short shelf life because as it has been was made very clear to me in my time there if you don't want it, there's a very long line of people behind you yep. that want it. And to put it in perspective, I left the Suns almost two years ago as of our recording of this, uh, March of, of 2015 or 2016 was when I left. And they've now had three different people, uh, doing my job. They've had, you know, they've parted ways with a few. There's that there's quick turnover. Like uh, the fact that I lasted five years is probably more of the, uh, the anomaly than than the rule with a lot of these positions so like yeah it's it, it's a grind and it winds up you know you start your sprint in late september and all of a sudden it's it's the middle of april and you go wait a second where did all that wow. time go like and and why do i feel like i haven't slept in in months and it sounds awful people are gonna be like, oh you're complaining about you worked in sports but there is a toll it takes and people don't understand that and probably don't respect it enough because when you, when you work on the digital side, it's not like you work eight to five. You work eight till 1 a.m. If the game, 
runs late uh, you and the next morning doesn't start overly late usually you usually get a little bit of a, a buffer but you know you're still coming in nine ten the next day to work your the regular mm-hmm. hours like there's there's a lot to it that that winds up happening and in social in particular you're on 24 7 like basketball operations decides they're dropping a press release at 10 45 at night uh you know on a saturday you better be available because they're going to want that out there and it's got to get on the website and it's got to get on your social channels. And, uh, if, if it's a signing or a trade, you better have a great graphic, uh, you know, made, even if it's, if it's from a template, you better, you better get working on that, you know? And a lot of times you don't get a real heads up on it. You maybe get 10 minutes before you have to get yeah. done. So there's, there's definitely a, uh, a, other side to the coin it is it is glamorous and you know i think we all uh probably at times get a little bit too much of an ego about it when you're doing it uh because it is glamorous but then there is that other side of it that you're just grinding and and it will take a toll on you definitely oh yeah definitely and um the job also i think adding to the the turnaround rate i mean it opens up doors you meet a lot of people you meet um and it, it looks good everyone is impressed by it and so people get uh higher paying less stress jobs elsewhere and that's another misconception people think that we make as much as the players i'm like uh wasn't even close yeah ma- <laughs> was not even close yeah maybe if i worked for about uh 400 years for <laughs> for the team and yeah. and we're talking the guy with the minimum salary sure yeah maybe i'd make make as much yeah no the, that's the thing that the value of a, of a good social media manager uh outside of sports is is much higher dollar value wise than than it is in in sports and you do you do give up some of that money so you can work in in something that is high profile and uh, and i think we all i think we all kind of understood that when we when we took uh took those jobs and uh, and then yeah you wind up getting out and going, oh, yeah, I can make a little bit more money and I can work uh, eight to five and and have a little bit more of a life. But you, you still, and I'm sure is the case for you too, you still sometimes miss it. You go, man, I really uh, wish I had been around for X, Y, or Z. You know, For me, I wish I had been working when Devin Booker scored 70 points and there was a historic night or uh, you know, it's the team's 50th anniversary and they're honoring that 92, 93 team that, that uh, I grew up loving. I wish I had been there for that, but then you go, oh, yeah, I'm here to watch my kid grow up and I'm here to be around for my wife when things aren't going well. I, you know, yeah, that, that's why I made this trade off. Yeah. Oh yeah. I, I get nostalgic sometimes and just remember just the game night atmosphere was electric and being a part of that. And, you know, I have so many good stories I could tell, like you, you know, hanging out with in the car with Steve Nash, like you get these experiences that so, so few people have, but at the same time, I don't know what it would take to get me to consider going back. And of course I have a very unique situation, but just saying just in general, if you know, all things were equal, I, I don't know what it would take for me to even consider jumping back into that world at this point. Yeah, I'm kind of in the same boat. It would have to be the the right situation with the the right uh you know mindset from the organization and 
uh, with some flexibility probably in the schedule too, because I just, I don't want to miss my daughter growing up. I, I might, I might consider getting back in on the media side of things. I'd love to do that. I mean, I, I, I'd love, I work for the National Academy of Sports Medicine now, and it's, uh, it's, it's not sports. You know, it's not, it's not working in that realm like, like it used to be. And would I consider going back at some point? Yeah, maybe, you know, you've got, you've got a great gig with stat muse and I love what you guys do there and, and some of the graphics you produce and that you do content like this, you know, like that kind of thing still, still energizes me and, and the content side of it. But the thought of having to man social media night in, night out for a team, uh, is probably not one that I would, uh, I would easily jump back into if, uh, unless it was the right thing. Yeah. So how do you, we, we talked a lot about how much things have changed since we were doing it. And I do kind of like you joked, I, I feel like the get off my lawn guy when I talk about, you know, what, what social media was like when I was doing it, but just in the three ish years I've been out of it, 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 it has changed so much. And like, to me, it all just seems like the, it's so much more of a toxic place than it was when when we were doing it. And even if I hadn't, you know, done what I did, I think I would just be terrified now th that that was going to happen with any any tweet you put out. You're, it's going to people are going to overreact or get offended or something like that. Um, yeah. Like, am I being too negative? I mean, do you see has just social media in general, has the landscape in general just changed that much? Uh, so from the time that we were kind of involved with turning it into what it is today? Well, I, you know, I don't know if it's changed because there was always that negative element to it. I think what's happened is there's more people there. It gets more attention now. So that's magnified and, you know, more people feel emboldened to act uh, the way that maybe it was more the minority back when we were doing it uh, was. but. Honestly, there's still those moments that you look at it and you go, there's a positive impact. For me, it was Stuart Scott died, and I think this was during my last season with the Suns. And it was a Sunday, so there's no management around or anything. And so I couldn't run the idea through anybody. But I just said, you know what? Screw it. I'm going to spend the entire evening honoring Stuart Scott. And every tweet we send out during the game is going to be... Uh, one of Stuart Scott's catchphrases. And luckily, Stuart Scott had a lot of them. I found a website yes, with probably 150 of his uh, of his most well-known phrases. And the whole night, we just honored him like that. And uh, it got a really good response. Like, you didn't get that that awful sarcasm. It was, it was people that, you know, really just felt, hey, this was somebody I grew up watching. I loved him. You know, and I, I can, I can relate to this. And, and we all kind of felt the loss of, of Stuart Scott because his battle with cancer was so public. So you got to kind of see the good in things there. I mean, that, those kind of moments and they're not all that high profile. I mean, I covered a make a wish kid, uh, getting a chance to be part of the Suns organization or, uh, there was a young man. Uh, in town who had cancer and grew up a huge Suns fan. And we took to the draft lottery with us and spent uh, two days in New York with Alex Len and going around town. And uh, th there's a lot of 
powerful things too. So would I, do I look at it and go, yeah, it's still, uh, it's, it's more negative than it was. It's more toxic. Sure. I mean, in my current job, uh, every morning I have to go delete about 20 to 30 comments off of ads that we run that, oh, this looks like something from uh, fill in the blank adult website because it's it, we've got trainers and it's a male and female yeah. and there's just a lot of idiots out there. But there's still a power to it, that it's something special. And, you know, honestly, if I went back into it, I wouldn't change the approach. I mean, if somebody, if, uh, I mean, if somebody wants to take something negative or, read it the wrong way. Great. But if you're not in there and you're not trying things and you're not walking that line and pushing the envelope, you're not going to be good at the job because you're not going to hit on new and exciting things. You're not going to find those new things. I would, I am enthralled with Instagram stories right now and the way teams could use those and the approaches they could take to it and how you could redefine a lot of what you do as a team through one medium. I mean, it looks, it, it's the, it, it's the shape of a magazine. You could do your whole, I'm, I'm giving away a free idea here and I hate it, but, uh, you could do your whole game <laughs> night program right there in Instagram stories and link to different sections of your website. There's all sorts of things that you could do. And that still gets me excited. The potential of what you could do with the content. Uh, so if I wound up back in, I don't think I'd change the approach. Uh, and if it cost me my job, it cost me my job, but I'd rather be pushing and pushing forward than not. I mean, if I'm not pushing the envelope, if I'm not trying to figure out what is the next great content thing for for people, I'm not doing my job, whether it's in my current position or, or, or in sports, you're just, you're not doing your job if you're not trying to, trying to evolve. Uh, you know, you're either, you're either moving ahead or you're falling behind. And I never wanted to be somebody that was falling behind the curve. Yeah, well, how do you see how do you see it evolving in the in the future? You know, and if we were to talk again in three more years, five more years, I mean, how do you see this changing? I know it, that's it, predicting technology is nearly impossible, but I mean, is there any anything you anything you see coming down the the pipe, or how do you, how do you see the whole landscape of a team social media manager? How do you see that changing in the next few years? Oh, well, the uh, team social media manager is now a, 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 as much a producer as the person that uh, that produces your game broadcast. It's a show that you're putting on every game. Uh, it's totally different than when we were just typing funny, uh, funny things uh, on a keyboard. And by the end, when I was there, it was getting closer to this, uh, to, to where it is now. But Really, you are producing a game. You've got to think of what what are my video content? What do my graphics look like? How am I going to intertwine working with Instagram, Instagram stories, uh, and Twitter? And how do I make this all work to be and Snapchat to to an extent? How do I make this all work to put on it the best game presentation I possibly can and make sure it all works together in concert? I mean, there's a lot of moving parts now, and how do you figure that out? And I think another thing that's coming, uh, and, and I've been a proponent of this for a while now, uh, OTT uh, delivery of games, over-the-top uh, delivery of games is going to happen. Teams are going to wind up yeah. uh, e either through their app or through deals with Twitter or, or Instagram or Facebook or wherever the platform may be. It may be something we haven't even thought. I mean, look, at Twitch is actually – 
involved in, in G League game broadcast now. I mean, this is going to become another element of it. And I actually think social media is going to become more married to game broadcast than ever before. And you're going to wind up working. It, it, all this is going to start to bleed together. The, the broadcast, the content. I mean, if teams are smart, they're putting themselves in a position right now to own their own story. They're going to wind up, the game broadcast goes off and at some point they may own that digitally online and then they're going to fill the content needs. It's going to feel like, uh, you know, every team has their own ESPN at some point because there, you can't fill this, this desire of the fans to have this content. Like it's never enough. And I think you're going to see all this kind of come together as one much larger thing. I think radio broadcasts are going to wind up going away and you're going to have audio broadcasts within apps that, that teams uh, and, and radio stations aren't going to be the primary. You're going to see teams focus more on, okay, the home of, of our audio broadcast is our app and maybe it's simulcast on a radio station, but that's not the primary need. Teams are going to own it. So this, this social manager role is either going to become a larger manager role or be part of this new uh, larger beast of a, of a department. And I think it's good for fans and it's good for people that work in the industry because there's gonna be a lot more opportunities to be a lot more creative. But my advice to anybody that's young thinking about wanting to get into this is learn video, learn graphic design, learn how to write, learn how to talk on mic. You're going to have to be a jack of all trades to do this, do this well and lead the next revolution uh, of media and digital media for sports teams. So if you're not learning all those things, you're not going to be equipped to, for this position uh, in the very near future. That, that is almost verbatim how I think I would answer that question. Yeah, you are you are right 100% on on all of that. I I think we'll see. That's that's the the crazy thing though. You never know what kind of turn it's going to take. But yeah, that's that's definitely the way I see it going. So I, I know we've talked a long time, so I can get one more good, quite one final question from you. If you just, in a nutshell, if people are asking you, what was it like to work for a professional sports team? If you had to give them just a quick summary answer, what would you tell them? Uh, I don't think anybody's ever written or said this before. So it was the best of times and it was the worst of times. No, I, uh, <laughs> no, I honestly, I wouldn't have trade. I wouldn't trade those five years of my life for anything. Uh, I mean, I got to experience very amazing things. I'm sitting in a room where I have photos that I took from my time with the team and they're, they're you know, I, I wound up meeting all these crazy people and it, and experiencing these great events, and I got to be on the court for uh, for Steve Nash's induction into the Phoenix Suns uh, Ring of Honor, and never imagined I'd be anywhere near it, let alone on the court taking photos of it. Uh, you know, it's it, it was one of the craziest rides I've ever been on, and we'll always look back fondly on it, no matter what I wind up doing moving forward, and some of the relationships I built uh, are guys I still talk to and, and, and women I still talk to to this day that because we experienced something that nobody, uh, I don't think anybody will ever quite go through in the same way again. Uh, the, the people that were there at the beginning of, in particular, NBA Twitter, we went on this crazy ride together. We, we kind of grew up on that platform together and, and 
got to lay the foundation that other people have built on since then. And there's a reason why people look at NBA social and in particular NBA Twitter as, uh, as the, the best in all the sports. And it was because we got to have fun with it. We got to push the envelope. We got to do things. It's stupid things like uh, hashtag wars in the summer where, where we did NBA vegetables and NBA cartoons. And we just came up with ridiculous stuff because it was fun and, and we got to learn about it. And, uh, I don't think I'll ever get to experience anything like that again. And it was an honor to be a part of that and work with such, uh, amazing talent around the league with me as well. So I, uh, I couldn't, I couldn't be happier that, uh, that I got to be a part of it and, and got to know those people. And, uh, if you get the chance to do it, even if it's for a season or two, I highly recommend taking taking the risk, taking the chance, and going and doing it because you'll grow a lot as a person, you'll grow a lot as a professional, and you'll have memories that you'll tell people about when you're well into your uh, and you're at the twilight of your life and uh, and sitting around talking about the good old days. You'll get a chance to to share some pretty incredible things. Man, that's awesome. Thank you. Thank you so much for your time and for helping me uh, kind of be more positive and looking back on my time there because I don't <laughs> I don't always uh, focus on the on the positive, believe it or not. But yeah, it's it's good to think back on how how crazy things were in a good way, you know, in those early days. So, man, thank you so much for taking the time. I really do appreciate it. And you were, you know, not being a blatant ass kisser, but great interview. I really do appreciate yeah, it. Yeah, no problem, man. And it took, uh, you know, honestly, it took me a while to get to a place where I was okay with it. I was, I was bitter for a while that I, that I left or some of the ways things happen there. But, you know, as you get a little further away from it, you got to just look at the, the good things that you got to experience, you know, and then the other crap you got to eventually, you know, it fades into the background and you got, you got some pretty cool memories. And I know it went, uh, it was pretty tough for you at the end. I mean, that was obviously a lot of, a lot of people's worst, worst nightmares, the way it went down, but you come out stronger for it. You understand it. And eventually you laugh at it. I mean, I had one, I almost got fired for a nine 11, post that wound up on Keith Oberman's show and uh and it was completely innocuous. It was just a bad choice of photos and uh that was run through like six people before I actually sent it. And you know, but uh, and but what was it? What was the photo uh, and the caption? They wanted the caption was just hashtag never forget, which well, you know, I was like, we can't do anything. We can't put anything that's cutesy or anything. We'll get hammered. And the photo that they wanted me to use was the, our mascot, the gorilla in fatigues from one of our military appreciation <laughs> nights. And I think there may have been in like the back corners, some pyrotechnics or something. I'm like, and it was just it was stupid. Like, and I ran it like I had like three photos and I'm like, I think we should use this one with the flag and, and other people like, no, use the gorilla one. And I'm like, okay. And I ran it through like six people and, put it out there and we just got killed. Like I went to a meeting and was gone away from the computer for an hour. I get back and uh, apparently the world had uh, come to an end uh, basically in the way everybody wanted to, was looking at it. And I, it was, I thought for sure I was going to lose my job. And the only, only reason I think I didn't was the vice president or the senior vice president we reported to her husband was uh, ex-military, uh, a first responder. 
And he looked at it and he said, I don't have any problem with this. You know, uh, maybe it was, maybe it was a poor choice in photo, but it wasn't malicious. Like there's no reason this guy should, should lose his job. And I actually offered to resign because that was how embarrassing it was. And, uh, so, so yeah, we all, we all had those moments. Yeah, (laughs) for sure. Yeah. Oh man. Yeah. I I feel you there. The the best of intentions. That's it. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed listening to me talk to Greg as much as I enjoyed actually talking with him. So be sure to follow him on Twitter at the handle at Espo, E-S-P-O, and check out the other full interviews if you haven't already. Once again, I'm Chad Shanks, and thank you for listening to this supplemental edition of the first episode of Sportsish. <laughs>